At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's up, Shadowy Sloops? And welcome back to another episode of The Alley on Sinister Silhouettes. And y'all know what it is. Crazy stuff goes down in the alley in any major city. You got dark stuff. You got crazy stuff. You got just plain criminal stuff that goes down in the alley. And it's no different with the alley on Sinister Silhouettes. And today we're going to be talking about some bad beats that go down in the alley. First, we're going to jump things off with an update to this Ruby Frankie Jody Hildebrandt situation that is coming out of Utah. And look, I have been intentionally kind of avoiding this conversation for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's being just completely overcovered. Like there are so many people talking about this case. There's no shortage of content out there from people who are far more knowledgeable about the situation than I am. However, I've also been staying away from this situation because it frustrates me. I am so deeply frustrated by this case. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's a saying that I'm sure all of you have heard as it pertains to witnessing what could be considered a crime or inappropriate conduct, and it don't even have to be in an alley, anywhere. Says when you see something, say something. When you see something, say something. And what bugs me about the Frankie case out of Utah is that apparently many people saw things that made them uncomfortable and they reported those things. Stuff like Ruby Frankie leaving her children alone for days at a time while she visited Jody Hildebrandt 200 plus miles away. And neighbors also accused Ruby of not leaving a means for the children to communicate with anyone at any time. So... In other words, she took their phones. She took their anything that they would be able to reach out with. And it kind of, I guess, cut them off from anyone who would have been a support while they were alone. Further, the two youngest children were homeschooled while the middle two were in public school. And we ask why. That seems really strange that you would homeschool two children and send two other children out into what they would probably call the lion's den. It's even more strange when the two youngest children seem to be the main targets of the abuse. Now, I think all of the children suffered abuse in one form or another at the hands of Ruby and Judy, but the younger two were the ones found in this emaciated condition in the home of Judy Hildebrandt. Neighbors also alleged that one of Frankie's daughters would come to their home during school hours looking for someone to play with. And when told, oh, this child that you're looking for is at school, she'd just say, well, I'll wait. This is a child that was unsupervised and had been unsupervised for some time. Um, And it had been reported. Then there are reports that Sherry Frankie, the oldest of the Frankie children, 
also called law enforcement in September 2022, asking for a wellness check on her four siblings uh, after she found out that they had been left home alone. She was very concerned that they may have needed things and among others, food. She thought that they may need food. And to me, all these things sound like opportunities that were missed to save the children from the abuse and neglect of their mother. Now, I don't know the laws in Utah uh, about when Child Protective Services gets involved. I know that they were attempting to be involved in this Ruby Frankie situation, uh, but they were thwarted at every turn because when they would show up to the home to make these uh, visits, there were times where you could see the children in the home, but nobody would answer the door. And this was just like something they would try again a couple of days later. And then the idea of investigating that family was abandoned. And I just feel like I feel like the system failed these children because you had a bunch of concerned citizens who were making the reports that you would hope that uh, neighbors who are observing some questionable activity would do noticing that the mom's car is gone for four and five days on end and knowing that the children were in the home those are things that the neighbors reported and nothing was done uh or at least a half-hearted attempt at contact was started or began but nothing came of it i truly feel like there were many opportunities for law enforcement and uh, child protective services to get involved they just failed they just failed i'm pretty sure that they were hamstrung by other arms of the judicial system but this just means that there's a problem it simply means that there are some uh i's that need to be dotted and t's that need to be crossed inside the judicial system in Utah. But let's go over what is new about the case because uh, a lot of it is the same stuff being regurgitated over and over. We know who wrote Ruby Frankie and her business party, Jody Hildebrandt, are at this point. We also know that they were arrested in late August on child abuse charges after two of the Frankie children were found in Jody Hildebrandt's home in an emaciated condition, one at least was covered in wounds and had been bound by duct tape when he escaped for help running to the nearest neighbor. And when I thought about the neighborhood that Judy, I'm sorry, that Jody Hildebrandt lived in, when they said he went to the neighbor's house and asked for food and water, I'm picturing your next door neighbor is side by side with you. It takes all of 30 seconds to go to the next door neighbor's house. This child, had to traverse a block from Jody Hildebrandt's home to the nearest neighbor's home because they live in like a sprawling community. And Jody Hildebrandt has a very big, very beautiful home. So for the child who escaped to get to the neighbor's house, he already had to walk what amounts to a city block with no shoes on in an emaciated condition uh, with duct tape on his hands and feet. Well, we know that uh, Kevin Frankie's lawyer 
and his name is Randy Kester, has been in the news. He is on the defensive of, over his client's a right to have custody of the children. Since the mother is locked up, the children have been in state custody. Kevin Frankie wants his children back and his lawyer is going out and speaking on his behalf. I don't like the lawyer. And I know that's like a very superficial thing to say. It feels like the lawyer, when you watch his interviews, specifically the ones that I've watched with him on law and crime, he looks like he's gossiping. He doesn't look like a person who is there simply to protect the interest of his client. It feels like he is it's, it's, it's gossiping about them. He has to keep stopping himself. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. You shouldn't be talking at all, sir. It really seems like he is basking in this attention and this could just be me and my take on this attorney, but I'm keeping my eye on him too. Now his attorney says that Kevin had been apart from the family for 13 months at the suggestion of Jody Hildebrand and Ruby had uh, encouraged him to not only separate from her, but also to maintain distance from the entire family. And for some reason, Kevin thought that was a good idea. Kevin thought, in order to save my marriage, I need to neglect my children because that's what Ruby and Jody says I need to do. Many people wonder what Kevin's level of involvement in this abuse is. Uh, the lawyer claims that Kevin was manipulated by Jody's twisted advice to stay away in order to save his marriage. So he followed it. But what did he know before then? We go back to the eight passengers videos. The eight passengers videos are the are from the YouTube channel that was shared by the Frankie family where they vlogged their everyday life, including some of their extreme parenting beliefs. And Kevin was down for the cause in those eight passengers videos. Um, still didn't look like he was quote unquote, wearing the pants in that family, but he was there and he was involved. Some of the stuff that was in the eight passengers videos was very troubling. Other things we saw in those videos were very petty. And again, it's an example of extreme parenting in this home, but it wasn't unlawful. It was just petty shit. Now, some of it with the withholding of food. To me, that was the big thing. They, they made questionable choices with some of their children and the activities to include sending one of them to the Anasazi camp, camp where he would endure uh, roughing it in order to change his behavior and scare him straight. There are people who had issue with that. There are people who have issue with these parents taking Christmas away from two of the children, but allowing the other four to have gifts and presents. And while these two other children looked on and didn't receive anything, a lot of people think that that's abuse. I think that's extreme parenting. And it's within the bounds of the law, even though it's some shit that probably wouldn't fly 
in a regular, normal, quote, household, even a normal Mormon household. Well, Kevin Frankie's attorney says that he didn't. Kevin did not want to separate from Ruby. He listened to Jody Hildebrandt. He was manipulated by her advice. And at this stage of the game, Kevin just wants to rebuild relationships with his family, uh, his children specifically, rather than sling mud at Ruby. He wants to heal past trauma. Well, of course you do. Because if you have the children with you, you can almost assuredly control the narrative and the things that you want them to say. If you are looking for the unmitigated truth coming from these children, I think it's important that for at least until these hearings are underway, that they have a very little contact, especially unsupervised contact with Kevin Frankie or Ruby Frankie. We don't have to worry about Ruby too much. Ruby is still behind bars and her attorney, Lamar Winward, says that he believes she'll be there for the foreseeable future. We know at least until uh, right after October 5th, because that is when the custody hearings surrounding the children will uh, resume. So in the 13 months that Kevin was no longer in the home, Jody Hildebrandt and Ruby had almost exclusive control over the children. We know Kevin wasn't even contacting the kids by phone. He wasn't going to visit. It was almost as if he were was a single man. Well, that I can feel, I can understand why these children uh, would feel abandoned by their father. And the attorney says that there is now a rift between Kevin and his kids, and it's due to the alleged manipulation and brainwashing by Jody and Ruby, because whomever controls the children, controls the, what they what these children think. And who knows what they may have said about the father in these situations. We know that Ruby's sisters both have come out with videos on their respective YouTube channels where they are casting an awful lot of blame on Kevin. And they are saying, which is very true, what they're saying is that what they were able to do for the children would have been limited. Doesn't mean that I don't know whether or not they made attempts to contact law enforcement or DCFS about the condition of the children or the fact that they had not seen or heard from these children. But when there is a separation in the family, especially a family um, whose religious beliefs often include excommunication, where at a moment's notice, you are supposed to be prepared to sacrifice a relationship with your family and or friends if that family and or friend steps outside of the teachings of whichever religious organization you're in. In this case, it's the Latter-day Saints, and it was Ruby who did the cutting off. Ruby cut her family off, and therefore it limited her extended family's access to the children. There was not an awful lot that the sisters could have done. Even if they missed the children and they missed Ruby, it was Ruby's choice to pull away from the family and the children come under her umbrella. So I get how the sisters and the extended family on Ruby's side were unable to get involved with 
uh, knowing where these were, what the condition of the children were at all times. Kevin, on the other hand, Kevin has the legal right to fight to see his children. So knowing that Kevin was out there for 13 months with limited to no contact with his children is actually is pretty disheartening. It's scary. It's scary that he could be manipulated like that in most religious homes, especially the patriarchal religions. There is a hierarchy and at the top of that hierarchy is God and the next rung in the hierarchy is the man, the husband, the father of the family. And then for that family to be compliant with God's heavenly order of things, the, the father would come first after God, then the mother and then the children. So in many cases, the father is supposed to cover the mother. And if he covers the mother, in turn, both of them would be covering the children. So if you believe this, then you would think that if even if I walked away from this home, the children should be OK because the mother, a godly mother, somebody he believes to be a godly mother will still cover my children. What he failed to realize is this situation was not ordered by God. This entire situation was ordered by Jody Hildebrandt. And Jody Hildebrandt may have her own agenda. I spoke about that the first time I talked about the, the Frankie case, which is her agenda could just be financially driven. There are many people who are now saying that it appears that Jody Hildebrandt has an issue with families and particularly the man being the head of the family. In fact, Many people who have used Jody Hildebrandt at the suggestion of the Mormon church uh, as a counselor, they have all noted that she has uh, an M.O. In fact, there are two things that show up quite often in Jody Hildebrandt's mental health counseling practice. The number one thing that shows up very often in her practice is that she asks for fathers to leave the home for the betterment of the home. And then that would end up being catastrophic for the marriage. So that's one thing that Jody has been known to do. And the second thing that she has been known to do is find a way to make pornography or uh, fornication, adultery, sex addiction, make some type of sexual offense at the center of this family's issues because that's what she quote unquote specializes in. And then, hey, but guess what? I'm just a person to fix this issue. How that comes into play in the Frankie case is that at a recent custody hearing for the children, Ruby dropped a bombshell that one of her children was a sex addict. She claimed that her children, one of her children, had been molesting his siblings and also molesting other children that he encountered and that these children need to be separated from other children at all times. Ruby dropped that bombshell in open court talking about one of her children. I don't believe that shit for one second. Uh, one of the examples that she gave of this child having this issue was that from the time this child was three years old, he was addicted to pornography. How the hell does that even happen? 
How would that even happen, especially in a home like the Frankie home? There was no privacy. This is a family who would take the doors off of your bedroom so that you could not be in your bedroom doing anything that they considered improper. These are people who didn't give their children regular smartphones. They gave them a very limited flip phones and they could not access the Internet. They didn't have unfettered access to outside materials. So how the hell would this child develop a pornography addiction? It sounds to me like Ruby is attempting to justify her and Judy's actions and to save herself. And I keep calling this woman Judy and her name is Jody. When I say Judy, y'all know I'm talking about Jody. And it's because of Ruby, Jody, these four letter names. Fucking, I, I hate both of these women. Plus, plus I hate both of these women. You'll add all these things together. And I'm a little bit touched. I'm see now. But anyway, Ruby was willing to throw her children under the bus to save herself. And it didn't work because Ruby is still sitting in jail. And she will be there until at least after the October 5th hearing. And after that hearing, we will probably be out of the loop of what is going on as far as custody of these children are, is concerned because the attorneys and the judge are considering sealing this juvenile case because of the sensitivity of dealing with children. And I am in complete agreement with the idea of sealing the juvenile case because it's number one is none of our business and number two these are kids and they did not sign up for this now we know frankie has been charged with six counts of aggravated child abuse along with jody hildebrandt uh, after the police found those two malnourished children in hildebrandt's home Frankie did appear virtually in juvenile court on Monday where the George, where the judge says she wants to seal these cases. Kevin Frankie was also present at the courthouse, as was Sherry Frankie. And Sherry's input is also being requested as they weigh whether or not they will seal this case. A pretrial hearing is going to happen October 17th to discuss next steps and um where would the children find themselves? Where will they land? Hopefully, this is speculation and hope. They'll land with uh, someone that they are familiar with, but I don't think it should be Kevin Frankie. I think Kevin himself, I wouldn't call him a victim again because he was involved in questionable treatment of these children during the eight passengers days. Doesn't mean that Kevin couldn't have had a change of heart and we just haven't heard that side of his story yet. If Kevin had a change of heart, Kevin should be willing to undergo some type of therapy and intervention between him and the children so that they can regain a trust for one another and specifically the children for their father before these children are placed in his custody. Also, we need to know more about and not when I say we, I don't mean to, us. I mean, uh, the people who are directly involved in the case need to know more about his relationship moving forward with Ruby, because if she is as manipulative as Kevin's attorney makes it out to be, or if she is under the spell of a very manipulative Jody Hildebrandt, and if she was able to deceive Kevin so easily before, 
um, if he is still maintaining contact with her and is attempting to fix their marriage or work on their marriage, uh, that was the issue in the beginning. He was putting the marriage over the children. If he is still interested in saving his marriage with Ruby, it could be a, a conflict of interest with him having custody of those kids because we know that she did a job on the children as far as uh, brainwashing them. Specifically, when you think of the child who escaped, went to the neighbor's home. If you have listened to the uh, 911 call, you hear that child on that call say that it was his fault that they did these things to him. He has been brainwashed. He believes that he deserved being put in these restraints, but everything inside of him is screaming survival, which is what made him escape to get food. So he knows in one part of himself that I've got to do what I have to do to survive. But then on the other side, he believes that he deserved the treatment that he was getting. And like I said, the first time I covered this case, it's a paradox for a child to be in. You love your parents. Your parent is mistreating you. How do you rectify that in your little mind? I must deserve this mistreatment because I love my mama. I love my daddy. And they're doing these things to me. And it's because I just simply can't get right because they wouldn't do these things to me because of some defect of themselves, right? Even though you, your children or your parents were a bad batch. <laughs> oh gosh, they're a bad batch. Anywho, we're still keeping our eye on the situation. I am not going to cover every little bitty thing or piece of news that comes out, even though I know that that is how I'll get clicks. Y'all love this case. Or you, you love to hate Ruby Frankie. And you're very concerned about these children. But as we learn more about uh, this case moving forward, and I mean, when the hearings happen or when we get big news out of this case, I will definitely provide another update. Again, the big issue, the thing that I wanted to keep coming back to is how I feel the system failed these children. I'd like to hear what you think. Please contact me, Sinister Silhouettes Podcast at gmail.com. I want to know your thoughts. Now, for this next story, I'm going to lay down a little foundation. This takes place in Columbus, Ohio at approximately 6 p.m. A concerned father called the police after he found out that his daughter had not only been interacting with an adult male online, but that this adult male had been soliciting pictures from her. And I'm assuming that these pictures are of her in various states of undress. The daughter, again, if I didn't say it the first time, the daughter is 11 years old. The person that she was corresponding with on the internet is an adult. So, at approximately midnight that same evening, the police finally showed up at his house to talk to him about the situation that he has found himself in. And this is where we will pick up the ring doorbell camera uh, footage 
of how that interaction with police went. Hi. Hi, uh, yeah, she's in bed now. She's in the house now. Well, it still happened, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, um, the whole point, I just want to be able to come over and talk to her. I mean, I just want her to realize what this was. I mean, reality is not much she can do about it. I mean, she could probably get charged with child porn. Oh, she can? Mm-hmm. She's 11 years old. She's creating it. Right? She's 11 years old. Doesn't matter. He's still making porn. No, she's not. She's being manipulated by a grown ass adult on the Is she taking pictures out? You guys have a nice seat. Okay. Thank you for coming. Are you serious? Have a nice seat. Tell you that shit. Did you guys hear that crap? And it would be the woman responding officer who is standing here spouting this ignorance to a father who is clearly concerned about his daughter and her well-being. The fact that now there are photos of her out there, regardless to who took the photos, she is 11 years old. It is real easy for an adult male to manipulate an 11-year-old child. For this officer to say, oh, well, we could charge her for making child porn, it's, it's almost like, say you didn't come here to do your job without saying you didn't come here to do your job. She said something threatening to the father in the hopes that he would let this whole situation die so she wouldn't have to be part of it. Yes, I know I'm not in her head and I don't know this lady from Adam. However, if that's not the reason that she's doing this, then please somebody tell me because it's, it can only be worse. Either she's lazy at best or she is an she is an uncompassionate wielder of way too much power that's the way i'm looking at it and it's like there's some gray areas in between but she's either got too much power or she's lazy as hell and she showed up there and she said something threatening to the father so that he would abandon the idea of getting uh help for his daughter now the father is under the assumption that there wouldn't be much he could do. There are ways to track these people down. Now, some of them are very smart. And by them, you guys know that I'm talking about these child predators. Very smart. And they use different ways to mask uh, their IP, mask their locations. So they're not completely dumb, right? These people didn't even try. They came to the house and didn't even attempt. First and foremost, if I call the police at 6 p.m. and you don't show up to midnight again, you were hoping this man didn't open the door. So you could say we made a return visit, but nobody responded. He opened the door. He explained his situation. And this lady accuses the, the child of creating pornography. And the last time I looked, pornography was between two consenting adults. It's a consenting person who is... Uh, performing for a consenting audience and they are all adults because consent you have to be able to consent so that means you're an adult anytime that there is an adult in possession of nude pictures of a child that is not their own child and there there are limitations to having a picture of your own nude child but if this person is carrying around a picture of a child that is not his and this child is nude that is not porn that is sexual abuse of a minor simply put we can't call 
this 11 year old child, even if she in, initiated this contact and took these pictures of her own volition, an adult is supposed to do the right thing in this situation. But apparently there is enough evidence that the father is able to locate that he would see that this is an adult man who has manipulated his child into uh, sending these lewd photos of herself. And then you have the police saying that she is distributing porn. Now, of course, there's more to the story. I wouldn't just bring this. Uh, the Columbus Police Department, once they got wind of this situation, uh, because this father took the whole thing to TikTok. And, you know, for as many things or many ways that I rail against TikTok, uh, and I've got my problems with TikTok, but once it hits that medium, with the uh, number of eyes that are on that app every day, then it gets picked up by bigger creators. It just gangbusters how much attention that situation can get. So now I'm reading from Insider. Um, the chief of police in Columbus, Ohio, apologized to a father who posted a video showing two officers blaming his 11-year-old daughter for being groomed after he called to report it. And I guess that's the word that I failed to use. She was being groomed. Yeah. The department announced an investigation into his response after the man shared a doorbell cam video of this interaction. Chief Elaine R. Bryant said in a statement posted on Tuesday night that the Columbus Division of Police was investigating its officers' conduct. My expectation is that our officers treat every victim of crime with compassion decency and dignity. What I saw in that video did not reflect that, she said. She also said the case had been referred to the department's inspector general. She re she continued that she wants to make clear this incident does not reflect the division as a whole. Our officers do outstanding work to bring comfort and justice to victims every day. I'm willing to believe and accept that, that there are bad apples. These I don't even know what the other officer would have said or done because the female officer was doing the talking here. But this male officer did not interject and say, hey, let's talk to this this uh, guy and see what's going on with his daughter before we jump to accusing his child of creating child porn. He didn't step in. And that is the problem when we have these bad apples in the police department. And I'm going to talk about another bad apple in the police department just a little bit. I'm going to finish this one up because, like I said, I think these officers were not interested in taking this report. It seems like they were just lazy. And she figured if she said something uh, that would dissuade this father from bringing any type of uh, charges against anybody that she could just drive around for the rest of the night. <laughs> uh, the police chief went on to say, as soon as we learned of this incident, we immediately reached out to the father to apologize and to assure him that this matter is being fully investigated, both the actions of this officer and more importantly, any crime committed committed against his child. Now, of course, these uh, media does know the name of the child's father. We're not going to go into the name of the father because his daughter is evidently the victim of a sex crime. Honestly, we saw the father 
behave admirably because I don't know that I would have been able to hold my tongue. They may have had to take me to jail that night had that been my daughter, granddaughter, child in that situation. Uh, moving on with this article because it tells us a better term to use instead of child porn. So advocates for children generally object to the term child porn, arguing that it creates a false association with the pornography cre created by consenting adults. They generally refer to explicit imagery of children as child sexual abuse material. The Columbus Division of Police released a, a statement shortly after the video gained attention on the internet describing the Inspector General investigation. Bryant added her more forceful statement later, department has not named the officers in the video. Uh, the chief concluded her entire statement by saying, as I have said from the first day on the job, when our officers do the right thing, we will have their back. When they don't, we will hold them accountable. I will be watching with much interest to see if that uh, turns out to be true because this was uncalled for on behalf of if only the female officer, even though even though I blame that male officer for standing back there and not saying anything because it makes him complicit with what the female officer was saying. This was a heartless, heartless person, a person who I would hate to run into uh, in the course of an emergency and, and her be the responding officer. It would freaking piss me off. So you guys tell me what you thought about this story coming out of Columbus that we are going to continue to watch. It's crazy, ain't it? Because this all this talk about um, protecting children. That's the one thing that we all can agree on. We want to protect children. And when a parent does the right thing, calls and gets police involved in a situation like this, and this is the response they get, it makes you lose hope in the institution of law enforcement. And speaking of losing hope in the institution of law enforcement, I got another very sick story about a police officer who was on his worst behavior right after this. But she is dead. <laughs> That's not the only time the Seattle police officer talking laughs while discussing what happened here. 23-year-old Janavi Kandula, a Seattle graduate student, struck and killed by a Seattle police cruiser while she was in this city crosswalk on Dexter Avenue last January. A fellow officer was responding to an emergency call. This video just obtained from Como shows that officer in route. The officer on the body cam identified in a news release from the Seattle CPC, the Community Police Commission, as Detective Dan Arterer laughs and says, Yeah, just write a check. Just... <laughs> $11,000. She was 26 anyway. She had limited value. He's going 50. That's not out of control. That's not reckless for a train driver. Now I want to turn our attention to a situation that's coming out of Seattle. I'm just going to read the Seattle Times article. You guys just heard uh, a little clip of some of the dash cam footage from an officer's vehicle. 
Let me give you the context around uh, that conversation that we were a fly on the wall for in his vehicle. And this is from, again, the Seattle Times. The world turned its eyes to Seattle last week for all the wrong reasons. A week ago, police body cam audio came out in which the vice president of the Seattle Police Officers Guild says the quiet part very loud, laughing and joking with the Guild president in the aftermath of the death of a 23-year-old student killed by another officer who was racing to a 911 call. Northeastern University student Janavi Kandula was walking in a Seattle crosswalk in January when Officer Kevin Dave, driving 74 miles per hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone, hit her, throwing her more than 100 feet. Kandula was from India and was studying information systems. Officer Daniel Otterer, vice president of the Seattle Police Officers Guild, accidentally left his body camera running when he was talking with union president Mike Mike Solon after assessing whether Dave was under the influence. In recording audio, he minimizes Dave's responsibility, erroneously saying he's going 50. That's not out of control for a trained driver. He was actually driving 50 miles per hour over the speed limit. But anywho, It was Otterer's other comments that shocked people around the world. In the recording, Otterer laughs with Solon and says, just write a check to make up for the loss of Kandula's life. He then says, $11,000. She was 26 anyway. She had limited value. In truth, she was 23 and her life had limitless value. The Seattle Police Officers Guild tried to limit and preempt the damage from the recording releasing a Friday post on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, saying Otterer's comments were intended to mock what lawyers would say and not reflect his feelings. But even if you take the most generous reading of the comments at face value, this defense strains credulity. In response to the audio, The Seattle Office of Police Accountability launched an investigation and within days, the audio was picked up by media around the world. Not long after, Justice for Janavi began appearing on X and the Consulate General of India in San Francisco called the handling of the case deeply troubling. Elected officials from all levels of government levied their outrage. Petitions were created and hundreds of people rallied last Thursday in Seattle to demand accountability for Kandula's death. It was bitterly ironic. The recording emerged less than a week after a U.S. district judge ruled the Seattle Police Department had achieved full, sustained, and lasting compliance with most of the requirements of a federal consent decree intended to improve biased policing and police accountability. Notably, the judge will continue oversight of police crowd control and officer accountability. In March, Mayor Bruce Harrell and U.S. Assistant Attorney Kristen Clark called SPD a transformed organization in asking Judge uh, James Robar to find the department fulfilled the agreement's core requirements. Yet the comments on the recording sound more like the department of old, not the supposedly transformed version of today. What was most chilling to the author of this piece, who is Naomi Ishusaka, 
most chilling to her about the recording was the laughter. The Seattle Police Officers Guild might try to spin the officer's words as a misunderstanding, but the laughter shortly following the death of this precious young woman spoke volumes. The laughter said her life didn't have value to the officers. The laughter betrayed a belief that they could do or say whatever they wanted and there would be no consequences. As Annalisa Thomas, whose son Leonard Thomas was killed by Lakewood Police in 2013, said in a statement from the Washington Coalition for Police Accountability, when we hear a recording of police officers joking about Janavi Kandula's death, we can't help but imagine all of the unrecorded conversations of police officers belittling our dead loved ones. It's not about bad apples. It's about a culture that is confident of its impunity, a culture that after 11 years of federal consent decree leaves the heads of the police union feeling no hesitation in laughing or minimizing a human being's tragic death. This culture hurts people of color most, particularly Black and Native American people who experience a disproportionate use of force by police and Black and Asian people who are more likely to be victims of police shootings. But the world is pushing back on that impunity. I can recall the big argument during the uh, George Floyd protests and in all of the subsequent protests against uh, the use of excessive force uh, when it uh, came to interactions between law enforcement and black or brown people in the, in the U.S., not just in one city or state, but across the board. Uh, there were many people who were shouting a slogan, and the slogan really got under the skin of some people. That is that black lives matter. Black lives matter. It's like a simple statement. But some people have switched it into this terrorist organization. Look, I understand that there is an organization that flies under the banner of Black Lives Matter. But when we just simply look at the statement, Black Lives Matter, it was so hard for some people to say those words and mean it and understand what the fight was about. I could care less about the organization itself. The sentiment means an awful lot to me. This is an example. The, the case of Janavi Kandula, of a person who whose life mattered. And in death, she became the butt of a joke at the hands of what many would say is an organization that killed her. Now, I'm not to comment on the officer who hit Janavi Kandula. I don't have enough information to know if uh, driving 50 miles per hour over the speed limit in um, an area where there was pedestrian foot traffic. I don't know if the call that he was responding to uh, warranted that type of urgency. What I am deeply offended by is the behavior of Officer Otterer and whoever that was he was on the phone with. Okay, this is not an opportunity for you to try out your stand-up routine. This was a time for Officer Otterer to 
display a, a little bit of decency as he spoke about this young lady who lost her life. And now you have a situation that was of much interest to the residents of Seattle and you have made it an ugly international news story. You have fed, sir, into the stereotype of American police. And again, I know that all police are not bad. However, when you have one police officer who wields a, a little bit of power, we say that he is the, uh, let me go back up to the top here. He is the vice president of the Seattle Police Officers Guild. And he he is that unprofessional when it pertains to the lives of uh, somebody that he might not be able to relate to. Uh, he said $11,000 for the life of a 23-year-old young woman who was in college and working on her degree, studying information systems. She had limitless value. This is an example, and they don't see anything wrong with it, BT dubs. They don't see anything wrong with it. They don't understand that they have reduced people. It doesn't even have to be people of color. We just heard a situation where uh, in Columbus, Ohio, about the, the young lady who, and I mean, I'm calling her a young lady, but she's really a little girl who uh, had her situation handled so, so terribly. That was a, a, a white family. If it's a person that you cannot relate to, it seems like the police uh, uh, handle those situations an awful lot differently. Janavi Kandula's life mattered. And I'm going to continue to watch this situation. I really have the feeling that this is going to be one that we will not get uh, any justice for Janavi. I don't I don't think that they are self-aware enough in the Seattle Police Department to see how they have hurt the community. The international community, if the federal government has to step in on the situation because of the outrage of the international community, then we might see something there. But if it's left up to Seattle, I don't have hope. Now, if you've noticed, my episode today has had a running theme of bad beats of police officers on their worst behavior. There are very good officers out there, and because I want to be fair, I am going to share a story about an officer who did everything that they could to help the person on the other end of that call. To find an article, I had to go to thegoodnewsnetwork.org, and there are very many stories here. Um, I did not want to, I intentionally didn't want to pick one where an officer saved an animal. I guess it seems like there are many times where uh, uh, people will value the, uh, the life of animals over people in times. So I didn't want to do that because we got a lot of police save animal stories on Good News, uh, the Good News Network. I went back to August 2nd of 2023 where in fact, I'll just read the article. It's not every every day one reads that a young black man's day was made after police officers are called to the scene. 
That boy's day might have been ruined in the in the Georgia town of Happerville, where the unnamed child was going door to door asking if there were any yard work that needs to be done. He was hoping to save up money by mowing lawns and trimming hedges and then buy himself a PlayStation 5. One of the neighbors had other ideas. Specifically, this neighbor picked up the phone and called the police, asking for this child to be removed from the area. Officer Colloran of the city of Hapville Police Department was dispatched to the area where he quickly made contact with the boy. The young man was polite, respectful, and truthful, wrote the department on Facebook. He was in the area because he wanted to do yard work, pulling weeds, cutting grass, and trimming hedges to save up for that PlayStation. Now, Officer Colloran happened to be a gamer himself, and he was impressed with this young man because he felt like this is somebody who doesn't want this game handed to him. He's not trying to come and steal a game. He's trying to work and earn money to buy the game on his own. And let me tell you, when them little kids buy them stuff on their own, they respect it and they appreciate it that much more so kudos to the young man and probably his parents for saying hey if you want this very expensive uh game system console you're going to have to do something to earn it and this young man was doing that so officer collar and being this gamer was impressed with this young man and thought he would help him reach his goal so he drove back to the neighborhood and met up with the boy surprising him with a PS5 right in the back of his squad car, one that he brought after getting his fellow officers to all pitch in around four to $500. So Officer Collarant and some of his friends were able to not only get this young man the video game system, but a gift card to pay for the membership so he could play immediately. Before leaving the young man to uh, enjoy his console, Collarant ensured he knew how to contact him over the PS5 network so that they could play together. That, to me, is a touching story because it's an officer going above and beyond what is the call of duty. Uh, he could have just removed the young man from the area and, and, you know, gave him a pep talk, patted him on the head and sent him on his way. He could have overreacted and we would be talking about something far worse or more sinister here. But instead, he acted with compassion. He was impressed with the ethic and drive of this young man and he helped him beyond what anybody would have expected from the police. This is what I'm saying. So I'm not speaking directly to the character of this officer. I'm saying that when we catch a snapshot of a person and that snapshot gives us an impression of who or what that person is and hopefully you know, the first impression is correct, that this man truly does care about the community that he polices. And even when people are apprehensive about, for instance, this young black boy, when people are apprehensive, he comes in and he gets this understanding of the situation. And then he went further and helped the young man. So we got police like this. And then we got police like those that we're talking about on these bad beats. I really hope that all of your encounters are with officers like Officer Collarin in Hapville, Georgia.
as always, I would love to hear what you think about these topics that we talked about today. Ruby Frankie and her husband, Kevin, and Kevin's level of complicity in what occurred with his children. Whether or not you believe more should have been done by the state to protect these children and all the other stories that we shared today, please send your thoughts and your feedback to Sinister Silhouettes Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for the Spotify, Apple Podcast reviews, wherever you are reviewing the show. Continue to do that for me. Keep them coming because they do help the uh, show find an audience. Before we wrap up this journey into the shadows, hanging out in the alley, remember the mystery doesn't stop here. If you've got a theory, a question, or just want to share your thoughts, don't be shy. Reach out to me on our social media pages and at Sinister Silhouettes Podcast at gmail.com because this podcast here is all about community. And if you're enjoying these Sinister Silhouettes, as much as I'm enjoying bringing them to you, make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. You will not want to miss a single spine tingling episode. So until next time, shadowy sleuths, keep your flashlight handy and your curiosity alive. This is Tasha signing off. Stay sharp, stay sassy, and stay the F out the alley. (laughs) Be safe out there. Peace.